Welcome to the Thomistic Institute podcast. Every talk on this podcast was originally delivered at an in-person event for university students, perhaps for one of our Thomistic Institute chapters on a university campus or at a Thomistic Institute retreat or conference. These lectures and events are happening around the country and around the globe all the time. To learn more, visit us at www.thomisticinstitute.org and sign up for our email list. We'll keep you posted about what's happening next. And finally, please subscribe to this podcast and don't forget to like and share these recordings with your friends because it matters what you think. This lecture is called The Fellowship of Happiness, Classical and Christian Perspectives on Love and Friendship. Classical moral theory attends to virtues and happiness, and it is often said that this is what distinguishes it from various modern approaches. But in addition to theorizing habits of choice and the purpose of life, a classical approach is also distinctive for its attention to friendship. Every major classical philosopher wrote on friendship, acknowledging it as an indispensable component of the good life. It would be hard to conceive of a genuine interest in wisdom about human life that does not attend to what it means to love and what it means to be and to have a friend. This is true even of scripture. Consider that the Gospel of John, which is the philosopher's favorite for its explicit attention to logos and truth, is also the gospel most emphatic about love and friendship. John's Jesus calls us friend, and John's God is love. We could all name circumstances in contemporary culture which make friendship practically challenging, but features of modern thought also make friendship difficult to understand. Theories of human nature and relationship that sow confusion or hide truths from us. If an impoverished understanding of friendship can make it more difficult for us to experience friendship, then by proposing to explain some classical insight about friendship, I am not engaging in a merely theoretical exercise. I am offering, or trying to, in a small way, an act of friendship. By sharing an understanding of friendship, I hope to strengthen your capacity to experience it. The path toward understanding begins with questions. Some questions I think are useful and which I hope you already share are, what exactly is classical wisdom about friendship? How did ancient philosophers understand the role of friendship in the moral life? How do ancient philosophical views compare with specifically Christian wisdom? What exactly does Christian faith change or add to the classical conception of love and friendship? Here is my plan to address such questions. First, I will describe a particular dialogue from Plato about friendship. Challenges to friendship are nothing new, and I will focus on this dialogue because of the way in which Plato there draws some profound and sublime insight from a starkly profane context. Next, I will turn to Aristotle's reflections on the nature of friendship, connecting what we learn from Plato to some of the influential, important, and well-known classical insights about friendship. Then we can move to a discussion of what is distinctive in the Christian perspective. 
often assumed to represent a radical break with pagan conceptions, we will see that Christian teaching absorbed and is even in a way illuminated by an essentially philosophical notion of friendship. And finally, lest this all sound too, historic, too historical and theoretical in the closing section, I will offer some brief practical advice about opportunities for friendship in the context of contemporary life. So the first main part of the talk is called Love and Belonging in Plato. Plato clearly saw that our experience of friendship engages our rational political nature. And so he attends to friendship in many of his dialogues. Substantively, friendship is related to various moral questions. And procedurally, it is implicated in any meaningful truth-seeking conversation. Socrates' best interlocutors are his friends. And other characters are limited in their ability to converse with Socrates precisely to the extent that they are limited in their capacity for friendship. So we find love and friendship as dominant themes in such well-known dialogues as Republic, Symposium, Phaedrus, Apology, Gorgias, Phaedo, to name just a few. The dialogue I want to use is comparatively obscure and even awkward. Obscure because awkward. It is called the Lysis. How many of you have heard of the Lysis? Has anyone read the Lysis? It's going to be fun. <laughs> if you've never heard anyone talk about it, much less defend it, you will soon see why. As the dialogue begins, Socrates comes upon two older gentlemen who are admiring two teenage boys taking wrestling lessons on a sports field. One of them, Hippotheles is particularly fond of the boy Lysus and describes how he would seduce him. Socrates finds Hippotheles' strategy inadequate and shames him for being such an inept lover. Socrates then proposes to give Hippotheles a lesson in how to properly woo the boy, a lesson which takes up the rest of the dialogue. As you can see, on first impression, the dialogue appears to condone and even depict Socrates participating in a culture of pederasty, the older man's sexual pursuit of maturing boys, supposedly dignified as a form of mentorship. You see now why few professors dare assign this dialogue to students. But as with many of Plato's dialogues, one must approach the Lysis prepared to revise one's first impressions. There are a variety of clues that things are not as they first appear. First, linguistically. Though it is mostly hidden in most English translations, the key word in the dialogue actually changes. When Socrates comes across the older gentlemen looking at the boys, they are discussing love as eros, erotic love. But when Socrates demonstrates how to seduce the boy, he asks about love as philia, friendship love. So in speech, at least, the dialogue makes a crucial turn. Socrates comes upon the question, what is a successful lover? And reframes it as a different question. What does it mean to be a true friend? This linguistic rhetorical shift suggests a corresponding dramatic shift. In approaching the boys, Socrates knows the other men expect him to play the role of lover. But instead, he plays the role of friend. Socrates' supposed lesson in seduction can be seen practically as a cleverly philosophical intervention. Socrates' seduction is nothing more than a long discourse with Lysus on the nature of love. 
Rather than winning the boy for himself, he seeks to awaken the boy's love of truth. Some might be familiar with Plato's Symposium, which also takes for granted but subtly criticizes the pederasty of elite Athenians. At the end of that dialogue, young Alcibiades' erotic attraction to Socrates is based on spiritual, not physical beauty. Socrates' virtue, and especially his steadfast chastity, both inflames and frustrates the drunken Alcibiades. Plato has constructed Lysis to be similarly subversive. Socrates is not actually participating in pederastic culture, but frustrating and transforming it. Indeed, practically speaking, the one thing Socrates achieves is to notice those who are vulnerable and less virtuous and protect them from themselves and from the predations of others. By engaging Lysis and his friend in conversation dedicated to love of wisdom, Socrates is not only interrupting a debased love culture, but showing the possibility of a different kind of love culture. And Socrates does all of this in philosophical conversation until, at the very end of the dialogue, his own conversation is interrupted by the boy's own trusted guardians, who appear like divine intermediaries, says Plato, to shepherd them safely home into the care of their parents, where they belong. To a naive reader of Platonic dialogue, the linguistic and dramatic movements I've noted might seem incidental to the actual philosophical arguments, which I haven't even started to talk about. Right? <laughs> but in fact, they are perfectly suited to embody Lysis's essential dialectical trajectory. The actual arguments offer a theoretical support for Socrates' practical strategy. No brief summary does justice to the actual conversation, so I encourage you to read it on your own. But I will try to isolate some of the substantive philosophical claims that emerge. First, Socrates and Lysis reflect on friendship as a kind of relation, and they find that for you to be a friend is for you to be related to someone on account of something, a lack in you, that the other seems to provide access to, some excellence in the other. Thus, in a crucial sense, one must be unlike one's friend, and it is not the friend per se that one desires. A sick person, on account of his sickness, desires the doctor on account of nothing about the doctor except his healing power. Likewise, Socrates argues that friendship always involves someone experiencing an insufficiency and so seeking through another access to the missing perfection or excellence. Another discovery of the conversation is that the liking of one thing in virtue of another implies a hierarchy of objects of desire, a chain of dependence and priority. And this chain cannot go on indefinitely. There must be something that is ultimately desired not in virtue of something else, but for its own sake, something good whose goodness is itself. Socrates does not put it this way, but the implication is hard to avoid and certainly consistent with what Plato says elsewhere. The very experience of friendship, the very desire for friendship, ultimately points us to God. A third discovery is that the good sought must be in some sense proper to, the, the property of, or something belonging to, the one desiring. As the sick man seeks his own proper health, the friend lover seeks to appropriate for himself what already somehow belongs to him, but must be received from the beloved friend. 
To grasp the nature of friendship, then, one must have an understanding of what properly belongs to oneself. Insofar as the desire for friendship is fundamentally human, and we seek completion or fulfillment as human beings, this means that to grasp the nature of friendship, we must grasp what properly belongs to human nature. We must know what it is and what would genuinely fulfill or complete any person seeking a friend. I've just distilled some conclusions of Plato's Lysis and done so with misleading clarity since the dialogue is difficult and hard to follow. In classic Platonic style, the conversation of the Lysis leaves questions unanswered and even seems to break down without resolving a final definition of friendship. Socrates is hoping to make further inquiry when the family guardians appear. Even so, in the course of the conversation, Socrates has at least articulated some significant principles and formulated a new key question. To know what it means to be and to have a friend, we have to understand what it means for one person to belong to another. Wanting to possess someone as an exploitive lover in the thrall of disordered eros is very different from seeking the good together with someone in whose life you share, someone responsible for you and your good. Though the immature Lysis could not quite articulate it, his role in the dialogue suggests that he instinctively knows the difference between the love offered by the strange men leering at him at the wrestling field and the love of parents waiting for his safe return home. Plato structures the dialogue so that Socrates can make this clear, but indirectly, by arousing in the boys an interest in truth so that we as readers see that this arousal is experienced less as predatory greed than as familial longing and belonging. The second part of this talk is called Aristotle on Friendship and the Common Good. These lessons from Plato will help us appreciate insights from Aristotle and especially highlight a unifying Aristotelian theme. For turning from Plato's challenging and unfamiliar Lysis to the classic treatment of friendship in Aristotle of Nicomachean ethics, we notice a deep continuity of thought, up to and including the emphasis on trust, belonging, and sharing. Substantial enough to be referred to as a treatise on friendship, Aristotle writes extensively on the subject near the end of the Nicomachean ethics, occupying fully one-fifth of that work, books eight and nine out of 10. Aristotle placed this discussion of friendship after the books on moral and intellectual virtue, between two discussions of pleasure, and before the final treatment of contemplation and the closing transition to politics. Compared to Plato's Lysis, in, in style, Aristotle's teaching on friendship is clear, accessible, and rather practical. Several individual lessons are commonly known. First, and perhaps most famously, is Aristotle's division of three types of friendship based on three motivating interests, utility, pleasure, and virtue. While Aristotle is not suggesting that there is anything vicious or wrong about friendships of utility and friendships of pleasure, indeed, they are natural and a necessary part of normal human life. He wants to distinguish that only the last, friendship of virtue, is proper or complete friendship, for only it involves people seeking the good of the other. This helps explain a second commonly repeated friendship lesson from Aristotle, that only good people can be friends. Vicious people can be compatriots, partners in crime, or simply enjoy each other's company, 
but to be a true friend, one must be able to judge and effectively pursue the good of another person, which of course implies that one has sufficient virtue oneself to discern, care about, and pursue the good. So a third familiar Aristotelian observation is that true friendships are rare. This is not only because good people are rare, but because the activity of judging and working for the good of another is local and long-term. One can immediately like someone, but one cannot be a friend without spending time together in the context of a common activity. We are embodied beings bound by space and time, which means that practically speaking, we cannot have more than a few true friends, people with whom one lives, if not residing under the same roof, at least spending a significant amount of time in the sustained activity of shared work. A fourth Aristotelian lesson is that friendship implies equality. Obviously, it is easier to like and be companionable, companionable with someone who is similar to you in age, in social standing, in cultural background, in power, etc. Aristotle's point is stronger than that. Actual shared activity implies some commonality of status, and differences of status can make it difficult to experience activity as fully shared. If your best friend is a colleague who then gets promoted to be your boss, that will almost certainly be a complication and a strain on your friendship. If you become rich and famous, you may gain many things, but you will likely find it difficult to keep as friends the regular people you knew before your good fortune. The importance of equality in friendship leads Aristotle to consider some difficult cases where the ideal of friendship seems to be challenged by inequalities of power or status. Are parents and children friends? Masters and servants? Husbands and wives? Aristotle is better known for pointing out imbalances in these friendships, but the important point is that he does allow for friendship despite the imbalances. As long as we are talking about human beings with a shared nature, some shared interests, and a shared orientation to an ultimate end, some degree of friendship is possible. Things are different at the limit case. Aristotle says bluntly that we cannot be friends with God because the divine nature is so different from, so superior to, human nature. The distance, the inequality between man and God is too great to bridge. For Aristotle, this is obvious and uncontroversial, but it is connected to a more difficult puzzle. Can you even wish your friend to achieve the greatest good? Achieving the greatest good would mean attaining to and even becoming like God. And so wishing your friend achieves the greatest good would mean wishing your friend become like God. So it seems that wishing your friend achieve the greatest good would, we, would mean wishing your friend would become such as to be incapable of friendship with you. <laughs> Aristotle does not resolve this puzzle, and one senses that he could not, because the way he resolves a later puzzle about whether we can, um, he, he doesn't resolve it beyond the way he resolves a later puzzle about whether we can fully contemplate God. We can't, but we should strain every nerve to try. Still, this points to a fifth key claim Aristotle makes, that the friend is like another self. For one to pursue the good of another, one must make the other's fulfillment as important as one's own fulfillment. One must find one's fulfillment in the fulfillment of the other. This identity of the other's happiness with one's own happiness means that one may describe the friend as another self. 
And it also means that, in a sense, to be a virtuous person is to be a friend to oneself. To highlight the significance of this observation, note that for Aristotle, there is no presumed conflict between altruism and selfishness, between other-regarding and self-regarding behavior. It is not that Aristotle has solved that problem, but that for his conception of human nature, it is a problem that doesn't arise. We seek the good, and since we are social beings, when we realize we share essential activities with others, we seek the good of others as a natural and necessary part of seeking our own good. So Aristotle has no trouble integrating self-giving, sacrificial love into his notion of friendship. A virtuous person, he says, serves his friends and will sacrifice goods including money, honor, and even his own life for his friends. The question of how to resolve self and other regarding interests, which does not arise for Aristotle, seems to presume the individualism of modern social contract theory, where the isolated person only self-interested, is regarded as natural, and some motive must be found for artificially creating community and aligning the individual's interests with the interests of others. From Aristotle's perspective, which recognizes the naturalness of community, all friendship and love is already both selfish and selfless. It is about seeking fulfillment with another in some good sought together, and it is understood that seeking the good together is our natural state. So I've summarized five Aristotelian claims about friendship. There are three types of friendship. Only virtuous people can be friends. True friendship is rare. Friends must be equals. And the friend is another self. The common thread linking these five claims is the notion of a shared or common good, something that multiple people are invested in. All have a share in the common good, not in the sense that the good is something divided, apportioned, and distributed among them but in the sense that it fully belongs to each and all participate in pursuing it together. The difference from the alternative presumption of community as artificial, as in a social contract theory, is most evident when Aristotle says that the domain of friendship coincides with the domain of justice. We are used to thinking almost the opposite, that where there is friendship, there does not need to be justice, and that justice is only required to negotiate competing interests between people who are not friends. We assume that if we are friends and have a dispute, we just work it out without appeal to justice. And if we are strangers with a dispute, then we seek justice, maybe fighting things out in court. Indeed, the project of much modern political theory could be understood as the attempt to articulate justice not only without friendship, but as if friendship doesn't matter. Behind the veil of ignorance or in the conflictual state of nature, Friendship is irrelevant or untrustworthy or impossible. Only by some artifice socially constructed can we craft artificially the obligations, duties, and rights that would make it possible to achieve some kind of harmony together, despite the fact that we do not naturally belong to each other. From the perspective of Aristotle, this modern political project is literally nonsense and bound to fail. Without actual friendship, there can be no justice. For justice presumes people who already belong to each other, that is, people consciously and willingly ordered in a shared life to a common good. The third part of the talk is called After Aristotle, the New Contribution of Christian Theology. We have seen that for both Plato and Aristotle, 
Friendship implies a shared good and seeks unity with another ordered to that good. We've even seen how and why this can include selfless sacrifice for the other, because to have a friend is to have another self, which is to say to transcend the distinction between self and other regarding action. And we have even seen how this must involve the gift of a political bond, a belonging to each other in fundamental and important things, obligations and duties which bind together, including especially in our order to an ultimate end. Finally, we have seen that this suggests if it were possible, friendship with God, and even becoming like God. As I've presented it then, classical philosophy implies literally religious and theological conclusions about friendship. So it is reasonable to ask now, what does Christian revelation add to the notion of friendship? What more do we learn from the gospel about what it means to love one another? There's a common expectation that Christianity introduces a revolutionary new concept of friendship or love. It seems central to Christianity that scripture reveals that God is love and even gives special place to a word for love in Greek, agape, in Latin, caritas, in order to emphasize its centrality in what Christ reveals. So some interpreters find more than new emphasis or manifestation and insist on a wholly new Christian concept of love to replace a pagan concept. The most common version of this says that pagan love is selfish, while Christian love is selfless. In light of what I have shared from Plato and Aristotle, I hope you are now skeptical of this claim. It is simplistic and misleading. I even argued that this distinction renders the classical Greek notion of friendship love incomprehensible. This is why C.S. Lewis, at the beginning of The Four Loves, explicitly rejects the usefulness of this distinction of selfish need love and selfless gift love. It doesn't help us make sense of love in general, and it does not illuminate the distinctively Christian contribution to the nature of love. Lewis, grounded in both common sense and the classical tradition, saw that the complexity of love and the profundity of Christian teaching about it cannot be reduced to a simple distinction between untrustworthy need love and godly gift love. In part, Lewis was also criticizing an influential view of Christian love advanced in the 1930s by the Protestant theologian Anders Nygren. Nygren's book had characterized pagan love, eros, as acquisitive, needy, and egocentric, while Christian love, agape, was generous, sacrificial, and self-giving. Nygren's view was criticized again by Joseph Pieper following Lewis's lead in the 1960s. But by the time Lewis was writing in the 1950s, the view had already been criticized by the Jesuit Father Martin Darcy in a 1947 study of Eros and Agape. Despite the criticism of Darcy, Lewis, Pieper, and others, Nygren's mischaracterization of pagan love has left lasting ripples in Christian theology. Consider that Pope John Paul II, in some of his reflections on marriage that we now call theology of the body, approvingly cited Nygren twice on the intrinsic selfishness of Greek Eros. Thankfully, this is not essential to John Paul II's teaching. And Benedict XVI, a good friend of John Paul II and a student of Joseph Pieper, gently but firmly reframes John Paul's interpretation of Eros. In his very first encyclical, Deus Caritas Est, the first main section argues that Eros is not intrinsically selfish. Rather, Benedict argues it can be selfish 
and so needs to be ordered, disciplined and purified, so that it is perfected as Eros. Christian love does not replace or destroy Eros, but corrects, directs, and completes it. It is not surprising that John Paul II would be attracted to Nigren's exaggerated interpretation of Christian versus pagan love for rhetorical reasons. John Paul II wanted to emphasize the way in which spousal self-giving images divine self-giving. But as we have seen, a transcendence of egoism, a focus on mutual belonging, and an ordering to the divine up to and including the notion of gift and sacrifice was already present in Plato and Aristotle's understanding of love and friendship. And in other respects, John Paul was fully aware of this. Near the beginning of his love and responsibility, an earlier work that formed the basis for the later theology of the body talks, his first description of love contrasts it with use, and he employs a basic Aristotelian framework to describe this, the special bond that forms when two people desire the good of each other. I'm gonna quote from John Paul II. The bond of a common good and of a common aim this special bond does not mean merely that we both seek a common good. It also unites the persons involved internally, and so constitutes the essential core around which any love must grow. In any case, he continues, love between two people is quite unthinkable without some common good to bind them together. This good is the end which both these persons choose. When two different people consciously choose a common aim, this puts them on a footing of equality. John Paul II's theology of the body is commonly seen as an attempt to apply a phenomenological framework in order to theologically articulate marriage's moral dimension. I think it would be just as fair to say that he uses an Aristotelian conception of, frame, uh, an Aristotelian conception of friendship to philosophically articulate Marriage is properly political character. Marriage not as a contract or a construct, but as a natural community in which two people belong to each other. Benedict XVI's reframing strategy helps us to see this and is exactly the one taken by Lewis in The Four Loves, reminding us that the natural loves theorized by classical thinkers are not intrinsically wrong or intrinsically disordered, though they carry the risk of disorder due to original sin. This does not mean that they should be abandoned or displaced, only that they are in need of redemption and reorientation, ordered to and by the true and ultimate goodness of God. But then, if it does not reject pagan love or introduce a new concept of love, what does Christian faith add to or change about the conception of friendship and love we have learned from Plato and Aristotle? We can take some guidance from the classic 12th century uh, spiritual Friendship by Elred of Ribot. For Elred, what Christian theology adds is a hopeful answer to the question Aristotle considered but had to answer differently about whether we can be friends with God. From Aristotle's perspective, it would be impious to claim that we could be friends with God. From Elred's perspective, God, through Christ, can be our friend and through friendship with God, all our other friendships can be purified and perfected. For what more sublime, he says, can be said of friendship? What more true, what more profitable than that it ought to and is proved to begin in Christ, continue in Christ, and be perfected in Christ? 
So not only does Christ perfect friendship, but Christ reveals that God himself is friendship. So note well, Elred does not say that Christian revelation provides us with a new concept of friendship. He seeks to explain friendship with and in Christ, taking the concept of friendship as something already understood before Christ and only more perfectly realized in Christ. Elred is so uninterested in seeking a new definition of friendship that he accepts directly and verbatim a classical definition famously articulated by Cicero. Friendship is complete concord, consensio, in matters human and divine with goodwill and affection. The word affection in this translation is Cicero's word caritas, charity, not originally a distinctively Christian word. But the heart of the definition is the word concord, in Latin consensio. The usual translation of consensio might imply a consensus in knowledge, intellectual agreement, mutual understanding, or perhaps emotional harmony, sympathy, or fellow feeling. But neither suffices. Consensio is more than a concord of mind and emotion. It is a concord of action. It might be translated as common cause or solidarity. As Aristotle says, concord, in Greek, homonoia, same-mindedness, is more than sharing a belief. A city, he says, is said to be in concord when its citizens agree about what is advantageous, make the same decision, and act on their common resolution. When multiple people are in concord, there are shared stakes where decisions are pursued together and their consequences are born together. So Cicero defines friendship as this kind of common action, shared consciousness and practical sol solidarity about the most fundamental and ultimate things, all things human and divine. So as we can see, both in Aristotle's extended reflection and Cicero's tidy definition, classical thought emphasizes that friendship orients us to the divine, includes gift and sacrifice, and assumes a context of belonging or common cause. All of this is retained in Aylred's Christian conception of love or spiritual friendship. Classical philosophy also left necessarily unsolved certain puzzles raised by this conception of friendship. How can we be oriented to God? Can we will ourselves or others to be like God? Is friendship with God even possible? For Elred, these puzzles are solved in the person of Jesus Christ. Jesus is an answer to natural human questions, and he answers those questions not by changing the conception of friendship which gives rise to them, but retaining that conception by offering his own person as the perfection of that conception. The Christian newness then is not the addition of charity or selflessness or sacrifice. It is the fulfillment and perfection of these, the actual possibility of union with God and with God's grace of a more perfect form of friendship with other people in the new community of the church. On Elred's interpretation, what is new in Christian revelation appropriately enough is not conceptual, but historical and practical. Christ made himself equal with us in the incarnation and died for our sake to redeem us for our sins in the crucifixion and conquered death so that we may live eternally with him in heaven in the resurrection. All of this is available to us if we are willing to trust him and live like him and with him by God's grace through the gift of the Holy Spirit as members of the new ecclesial community. Christ fulfills the classical understanding of the political dimension of friendship as an expression of common life. Consider a passage from Aristotle 
at the end of the Nicomachean Ethics. I will read it without change, but while I read it, imagine that you are a Christian theologian trying to articulate what is meant by new life in Christ, and envision how these words could also be extended to describe the life of Christians in the church, or better yet, the life of Christians in heaven, where saints are friends with saints and with God because God loved them and wanted to be a friend to them. So here is Aristotle. For friendship is a partnership, and as a man is to himself, so he is to his friend. Now in his own case, the consciousness of his being is desirable, and so therefore is the consciousness of his friend's being, and the activity of this consciousness is produced when they live together, so that it is natural that they aim at this. And whatever existence means for each class of men, whatever it is for whose sake they value life, in that they wish to occupy themselves with their friends. And so some drink together, others play dice together, and others join in athletic exercises and hunting, or in the study of philosophy. Each class spending their days together in whatever they love most in life. For since they wish to live with their friends, they do and share in those things which give them the sense of living together. By pointing out the ways in which the Christian message fulfills a natural aspiration for friendship, I hope it is clear that I am trying to help illuminate and in no way diminish the gospel. The good news is that God is your friend. He is and has always been a friend to you and he wants you to be a friend to him. As the Father, God is a personal divinity to whom we belong and who calls us home. The logical, ultimate friend and first parent, suggested by Plato. In the incarnate Son, God sought us and joined us, miraculously bridging the unbridgeable inequality between God and man, insisting on friendship up to and including laying down his life for us. And with a promise of his grace, especially through the sacraments of the church, God the Holy Spirit makes himself continually available to us, alive with us, animating our active solidarity and common life, and sharing in God's work of salvation for the whole world. And all we have to receive this grace, all we have to do is have faith, that is trust, and through that trust, know ultimately to whom we belong. The final section is called Modern Challenges with Advice and Leading to Hope. Let me summarize the path we've been on so far. I offered some reflections on the classical notion of friendship and its connection to belonging. And then I tried to show how this addresses some of our other questions about the relationship between and relevance of classical and Christian reflections on love and friendship, including the way in which Christ himself fulfills the classical notion. If you followed the reasoning so far, you might be persuaded about some points of intellectual history, perhaps had your interest peaked in some further reading in classical philosophy and Christian theology, and you might even appreciate in a new way the elegant and genius miracle of God-made man. But you may still wonder how all this can help you in the concrete, practical challenges you face, seeking and maintaining friendships. So I will end by offering something like actionable advice for those wanting to build friendships. First, cultivate the virtues. You don't make a friend by seeking a friend. You make a friend by seeking something virtuously together with others. So rather than focusing on finding a friend, focus on making yourself worthy of being a friend to someone else. This means attending especially to the basic virtues, the cardinal virtues of temperance and courage, justice and prudence, 
and it especially means attending to the key virtues of a friend, especially trustworthiness. Be the kind of person that others know they can rely on. Cicero's reflections on friendship give special attention to issues of integrity, loyalty, and truthfulness. Any lack in these areas can damage friendship, sometimes permanently. You would not tolerate unreliability or betrayal or deception or hypocrisy in a friend. So work yourself on being the kind of person known for being steadfast, dependable, and trustworthy. Second, take honest stock of how you use your leisure or downtime. Your use of such freedom is a sure sign of what you think is truly important, and it orients everything else, including work and family obligations. When no external demands are placed on it, is your attention occupied with things that build you up and orient you towards what is beautiful and noble and true? Or do you allow your attention to be distracted, indulged, and dulled? Your attention is a kind of appetite. How are you feeding, directing, and disciplining it? Review especially what you give attention to in spare moments. How do you handle boredom's temptation to seek distracting relief? Do you say, do you stay mindful of important things? Do you read worthy books, attend to people who mean most to you? Or do you slip into gossip, cultivate envy, seek approval, or worry about status and reputation? Third, cultivate consciousness of your given belonging. As we've seen, belonging can be made, stipulated as by a contract through discrete choices. But this is a secondary sense of belonging the exception, not the rule. True belonging is given, not made. The belonging of parents and children to each other, of husband and wife to each other, of neighbor with neighbor, of citizen with homeland, none of these, in the normal course of events, are strictly chosen. Even the relation of employee to work is subject to more contingency and control. We do not make, we discover our calling. Where choice comes in, it is in accepting and humbly receiving a gift of circumstances, perhaps providential circumstances, beyond our power. A big part of the challenge of friendship for many is the degree to which, in modern circumstances, community and common life continue to feel chosen and contrived, a matter of one's own making. We are seldom aware of inheriting community or receiving a role with given duties and responsibilities. Or maybe we are, but we have been habituated out of noticing. A student, for instance, has a special status in life, a vocation to study, reinforced by the blessing of a structured leisure in the classical sense, where for a privileged period of life, immediate servile concerns are taken care of so that attention can be turned to more liberal matters. The world of work, too, in and through serving some purpose, means that one has a context for collaborative common action with and for those whom the career serves. Whether your current employment feels meaningful or not, it comes with duties and responsibilities, opportunities to serve, a context in which to relate to others, a social structure. Work can be an occasion to form friendship, and even if your closest friendships are not formed there, the work context provides opportunities for you to cultivate the virtues of a worthy friend, to seek the well-being of others, and to collaborate with others for some good purpose. If your job doesn't provide any of those things, you need to look for another line of work. <laughs> One last bit of advice, especially for those who struggle to find friendship. I have been describing friendship as perfective of the human condition. 
That is not meant to increase your anxiety about missing it. It is a reminder and a reassurance that challenges to authentic friendship are a universal experience of the human condition. The title of a book by Sherry Turkle describes the common experience of young people today as feeling alone together, that is, isolated as a member of a crowd, not a community. This is functionally the opposite of Aristotle's conception of a shared life, living in and through others for a common purpose. Turkle is focusing especially on the paradox that digital media promises connection but psychologically alienates. But in a way, digital media has only intensified and democratized a common experience of feeling isolated, even and especially when we are among others. The child attending a new school, the young professional moving to a bustling metropolis, or the mother at home managing a house full of children. Even for Plato and Aristotle, the polis as a site of genuinely common life was an ideal not yet realized. In a way, the human condition in an, any earthly city is like that of the vulnerable boys in Plato's Lysis. In a public place, longing for connection, but aware of misaligned interests and threats. We know we are not yet home. We wait for guidance back and need protection along the way. Especially if you feel the need for friendship, take consolation that this is a healthy and human longing. Far, far worse if you stop longing for it. Friendship is partly constituted by the shared exploration of what it means to be friends, which is to say the shared exploration of what it means to be virtuous and to attend to important things, to live as best you can in your given situation in common with others. In Plato's narration, that is what Socrates offered the boys at the wrestling pitch, something they would not have had without him. Like a true friend, Socrates gives his attention to them intercedes for them, provides the, and provides what they would otherwise lack, security from threats, fortification in virtue, and a safe passage back to familial communion. It is not unlike, in the Christian story, what God himself offers all of us. We are vulnerable and confused and immature. In the incarnation, death, and resurrection of the Son in Jesus Christ, God broke into our lives to befriend us and reorient our hearts and minds. He reminded us where we belong and assures us that we are under his care and that he will ensure safe passage to our supernatural home. That is a story of friendship. And the more we can share this story with others, the better friends we will be. Thank you. Thanks for listening to this lecture on the Thomistic Institute podcast. The generosity of people like you makes this podcast possible. If you enjoy these talks, please consider showing your support at www.tomisticinstitute.org donate. Your donation of even a dollar helps us reach more college students and many others with the powerful truths of the faith, and it ensures that we can keep publishing top-notch lectures on this podcast. Thanks a lot.